Hello and welcome to the final Lancet podcast of the year. I'm Richard Lane and it's Friday, December the 19th. This podcast covers the double issue of the Lancet, which stretches from Saturday, December the 20th, all the way through to Friday, January the 2nd. Instead of running through the normal content highlights for this double issue, this last podcast of the year is going to be slightly different. Without further ado, let me hand over to The Lancet's editor, Dr. Richard Horton, and my colleague and great help on The Lancet podcast throughout the year, Dr. Rowan MacDonald, for their review of 2008. Hello there, and welcome to this special podcast, which is a review of the year. And I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Horton, editor of The Lancet. Hello, Richard. Hi, Rona. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Well, it's been quite a year. We've just been discussing some of the things that have happened. Um, an incredibly busy year, as usual. Uh, what were your clinical highlights for the year, Richard? Do you want to talk us through some of them? The big story which got the most media coverage and I think was in many ways not just exciting for this year but has the potential to have a footprint in coming years was the clinical transplantation of this tissue-engineered airway which was a remarkable scientific story but perhaps most of all a remarkable human story. Um, What these authors did was to graft in a trachea having removed cells from a donor and by doing that they were able to give a completely new lease of life to this patient. It was the first time this tissue engineering had been done for a lung condition and the results of it were just spectacular and the great thing about the media coverage was that they were able to introduce the patient to viewers interview her, talk about how this took place. It was just a remarkable story. And also they introduced some new elements like the EasyJet controversy as well. (laughs) And that gave it a little bit of an extra spice, no question. So great, that was one of the um, sensational stories of the year. But we've also covered a lot of chronic conditions this year with some hopeful news for some of the conditions that usually there's not really that much hope in. Do you want to tell us a bit about them? Yeah, you know, we've, we've spent probably over the last five or ten years publishing dozens of studies about hypertension and heart disease, and, and that's really important, but we've got to a very high level of treatment for those conditions. There are some very common conditions which have very poor treatments or very challenging conditions which have a sequence of treatments which aren't always as good as we would like. Rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis are two of those and we published studies this year for rheumatoid arthritis for example, an interleukin-6 receptor antagonist and for multiple sclerosis a very simple chemical oral fumarate. Both of these studies early stage studies but both of them showing favourable effects and I think that is very very exciting for patients. No absolutely Um, and another of well one of my papers of the year that we published in an area that doesn't get much attention is surgery and treating it more as a public health issue. Do you want to say a bit about that? The Lancet hardly gets any surgery papers. There's a lot of surgical research that's done but surgical research has a lot of challenges with it as well. Often it's not very good, there are very few trials, so surgery doesn't get the kind of coverage in journals that it ought to do, given how important the issue is. And what this study did was to try and look at how big an issue is surgery in the world today. And perhaps not surprisingly, it's obvious, it's a huge issue, and we 
under-consider the importance of, of surgery. And this study, looking across the world at, at how significant the burden of surgical disease is, is an a urgent call to action to say we have to take surgery much more seriously in the way we think about medicine around the world. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. And that leads us nicely on to some of the global health stuff that we've been doing this year. Um, we're just recapping all our series and special issues a bit earlier. And just to quickly run through them, um, we've had undernutrition at the beginning of the year. Um, we've had a special issue on health workers. We've had a special issue on countdown to 2015. That was for maternal, child and neonatal mortality. We've had the ALMA at a special issue. We've had a special issue on health systems research and social determinants of health. On the right to health that we did the podcast on last week. We've had series on China and child maltreatment and HIV prevention. Wow, what a year. <laughs> and of course, Richard, you were at all of them and at the launches of all of them. So what were your special moments for these throughout the year, would you say? Well, for me, I think there are, there are two big themes that come out of these. I mean, they're very disparate topics, but I think the first one is the science. The science that went into each of these series was incredible. You know, the scientific community is a completely neglected force in the way we think about health and health policy. And what each of these studies, for me, showed was how when you bring a, bring a bunch of really smart scientists together, they work on a particular project over 12 to 18 months, and what they end up producing is something really quite remarkable. I mean, the one that stands out for me in particular was, was in China, where we had ministers, we had public health scientists from China, we had public health scientists from outside the country, the current Minister of Health in China publishes papers in Nature and Science, he, he's an active still scientist, um, and I think that kind of, um, that nexus of politics and science really can begin to make a difference. I think the second bit is also actually the, the, um, the way health is now becoming a serious political issue. Um, again, in ways that it just hasn't been in the last few years. At the Countdown to 2015 meeting, which took place in Cape Town, we had scientists sitting side by side with ministers of health from around Africa. Remarkable. It doesn't happen normally. In Bamako, talking about research for health, you had exactly the same. Hundreds of scientists rubbing shoulders with ministers. Um, the HIV prevention series, again, trying to raise the issue as something that has been completely ne neglected on the global agenda of HIV for 20 years putting it in a space by these scientists so that politicians and policymakers can really do something because something can be done. So I think for me, those were some of the highlights. Brilliant, thank you. And just to say the child maltreatment series that we recently launched caused a bit of a stir as well. Oh, that just drove me completely crazy. Um, you know, this was an amazing piece of work that we did in collaboration with, with the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health here in the UK, Brilliant scientists from around the world worked on this um, over about a 12 to 18 month period. Again, launched the series, raising an issue which is, again, so neglected, a real scar on our society, something nobody really wants to face up to because, unfortunately, it's those closest to children who are responsible for much of the maltreatment that one sees. And some of the press reaction was of the most immature, infantile kind you could possibly imagine. We were accused of trying to destroy families because we were raising these issues. 
And I think it's a reflection that the forces of conservatism in society, um, parts of the media which simply don't want to face up to some really difficult social issues which are within the health domain, they need to be challenged. And journals are one component of that challenge. And I'm incredibly proud of the researchers who put together that series on child maltreatment. And I would just like to add, lastly, um, I'm also incredibly proud of our editors who worked passionately throughout the year to produce these series, to publish this research with authors. They've done an incredible job and they deserve a holiday. Thanks very much, Richard. Finally, your predictions for 2009. I know we've got a lot of series ahead. And of course, another big highlight of this year was the launch of our new website, which hopefully we'll be developing a bit more um, in 2009 too. So yeah, what are your predictions for 2009? I think we're going to see this global economic crisis actually force us to decide what really matters in the world. I, everybody is incredibly negative about this crisis, and, and so we should be. A lot of people are getting hurt by it. But it's going to force some of the big institutions in the world, whether they're in the United Kingdom, the United States, or um, uh, globally, we're going to see them have to say, you know, we can't do it all. What is most important? And, you know, in some ways, that's going to force us to choose the things that sometimes get neglected. Africa is neglected. Climate change science remains neglected. Some of the diseases of affluence, obesity, which still hasn't been seriously tackled, has to be tackled. So I think we're going to get more serious in the next 12 months, and being more serious is good for the world. The other big exciting thing for me is we're going to have a new president in the United States. And I really relish the first 12 months of President-elect Obama's term. He has an opportunity, like nobody in a generation, to completely change the conversation we have about science, medicine, and public health in the world. Only this week, the Institute of Medicine published an absolutely stunningly important report on why global health should be one of the top foreign policy issues in an Obama first term. They need to listen to Harold Varmus in the Institute of Medicine's report. It was a great report. It should be on his desk in the Oval Office as soon as he walks in on January the 21st. Um, so I'm very optimistic about the future. Well, that's very good to finish off with. And of course, we should say we did an editorial a month or so ago about what we wanted Barack Obama to do, both for domestic US health, but also for global health. So maybe he'll have that in the wall of the Oval <laughs> Office as well. Who knows? Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, thanks very much, everyone, for listening. So that's me, Rona McDonald, signing off for now. Many thanks to Richard and Rona for their entertaining review of 2008. And it wouldn't be fair to talk about our double issue at the end of the year without talking about our Lancet special issue. So earlier in the week, I spoke to my colleague, Dr. Jane Godsland, to find out more. You've been working incredibly hard in pulling together the Lancet's 2008 special issue. And the topic of this year's special issue is none other than Charles Darwin, which I guess isn't surprising because of everything that's happening next year. Is that right, Jane? Is that the reason why you chose it? Absolutely, yes. Next year, February the 12th, 2009, is the bicentenary of Darwin's birth. So we thought this offered the perfect opportunity to celebrate his life and his contributions to science and medicine. And a double centenary, isn't it? Because, of course, his seminal book on the origin of species was published in 1859, so 150 years. So, Jane, talk us through um, some of the highlights here. 
Okay, well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that this really is a unique Lancet book. It's a really lovely little paperback. Um, and we've tried to appeal to all readers of The Lancet. So we're looking at clinicians, researchers, policymakers, but also really to reach out to the educated lay public, as it were. And I have to say, I think we've actually achieved that. The paperback includes 17 short essays covering such a vast range of topics from synthetic biology and genetics to the representation of evolution in fine art. So it's really got something for everyone. I think if you delve in, I'm sure we'll be able to find something you're interested in. I really love the variety that you have there. I mean, just to read about art and just to, and, and even just to read about the fact that, you know, he might not have become an evolutionary biologist at all because he was originally destined to the church, was he not? He was, and then to surgery and then finally to evolutionary biology. A convoluted route, but only fantastic. So yeah. go on, Jane, give us, give us some more morsels. I think maybe one of the first things that you come across in the book is a really lovely foreword written by Steve Jones. He's professor of genetics at University College London. He's also one of the world's most eminent Darwin experts. So we're really delighted to have had his contribution. The book moves on slightly and we're taken aboard the HMS Beagle where Darwin obviously did some of his first early studies. One of the lovely things is being able to get a feel for some of the animals that influenced Darwin's early research including what's aptly named Darwin's fox. This is a critically endangered species that he discovered off the coast of Chile. Peter Hayward, who's the author of the essay entitled Darwin's Charm, offered this wonderful quote from Darwin on discovering this new species. He said, A fox of a kind said to be peculiar to the island and very rare in it, and which is a new species, was sitting on the rocks. He was so intently absorbed in watching the work of the officers that I was able, by quietly walking up behind, to knock him on the head with my geological hammer. This fox, more curious or more scientific, but less wise than the generality of his brethren, is now mounted in the Museum of the Zoological Society. Fantastic. That's a lovely quote. That is lovely. I think, as you mentioned already, Richard, the 150th anniversary of The Origin of Species, which was really one of the early books that defined Darwin. Um, With that happening next year, it really would have been a miss not to have looked at one of Darwin's greatest gifts to us, and that's his written works. Lord Harries, who was the Bishop of Oxford here in the UK from 1987 to 2006, reviews the infamous origin of species for us and gives some quite unique views from the current day. That's a really nice, different take on the matter. As well as origin, obviously Darwin penned other books including The Descent of Man and lots of other factual scientific texts, but perhaps slightly less well known is his gift as a writer of letters. Richard Horton has given us an insight into some of Charles Darwin's more personal correspondences with other eminent scientists from his day, but also between his family and friends. And there's this one particular quote taken from a letter to his wife, Emma Wedgwood, from a letter in 1844, where Darwin says, If, as I believe, my theory in time be accepted even by one competent judge, it will be a considerable step in science. Such a nice illustration of Darwin's humility and his constant questioning of his theories, and he's never, he was never quite willing to just let them lie. That's interesting, Jane. I hadn't got to that bit of it. It almost sounds like he was rather pessimistic about what he was doing. I think he was, actually. I mean, that's it really comes out in the piece by Richard Horton, but he was very nervous of how his uh, theories were going to be taken in the wider world, and I think quite rightly so. There was an awful lot of controversy at the time around this, which is, again, why it's quite nice to have someone from the church now looking back at what Darwin's contributed. And I think you've got a couple of other morsels for us, Jane. I have. Well, obviously, being a medical journal, we realise that many of our readers will be interested in some of Darwin's legacies to medicine. So we wanted to explore this in a number of angles in the book. Perhaps one of the most 
obvious legacies of evolution in medicine is the emergence of antibiotic resistance, and Professor George Salmon from the University of Cambridge explains this to us a little bit more. Also, the impact of evolution on disease development is fascinatingly examined by Randolph Ness in an essay titled Evolution, Medicine's Most Basic Science. We learn about some of the evolutionary adaptations that have led to clinical phenomena such as senescence and depression, something I had no concept of beforehand, but... Unfortunately, neither Ness nor Darwin have been able to offer us a cure for these as yet. And something about a family tree. Yeah, it's one of my favourite things of the book, actually. It's an absolutely beautiful three-page pull-out sketch of Darwin's lineage. And it's drawn by an exceptionally talented young man called Andrew Hicks, who has actually illustrated the whole book for us with lots of sketches of some of the animal kingdom's most wonderful specimens, including the blue-footed booby and the bombardier beetle. Um, but the genealogical sketch is actually also accompanied by an exploration of the achievements of some of Darwin's most eminent relations, including Richard Keynes and Horace Barlow, and they're two of Darwin's great-grandsons who are current-day scientists noted in the fields of neurophysiology and neuroscience. And I think that's really lovely to see how, in lots of ways, his work's carrying on through his family as well. I think, if I can also just mention a couple of the more controversial topics that we've covered in the book, um, one being the idea of Darwin as one of the great philosophers alongside Plato and Aristotle, something I would not have thought of before, and also considering him as the inspiration for modern-day social science. And the final essay in the book is by Nancy Hansen and her colleagues at the University of Manitoba in Canada. And she explores the concept of eugenics, always a very difficult subject, but looking at the concept of eugenics in the 21st century from a disability rights perspective. As the final essay in the book, I think particularly interesting it leaves us with a sentence worth devoting some time to pondering and that is after two centuries the time has come to sever the threads that bind us to this primitive and narrow view of evolution and to recognize that the process of selection is often far from natural i hope everyone listening is so tantalized by all of this that they're going to rush out and read it and there is a note actually isn't there of course anyone who subscribes to the lancet will be receiving the special issue or book which I, and I think it's great you're calling it a paperback book. We'll get that with their issue. But obviously a lot of people listening to the podcast may not be paid up full subscribers. So some news here about how to get hold of it. Yeah, absolutely. If you just maybe contact us at The Lancet, we'll be able to sort out some copies for you. They're available at £5 each. Okay, that's super. Dr Jane Godsland, thanks ever so much for talking about this year's special issue. Thanks very much. Many thanks to Jane, to Rona and to Richard for helping with this special end-of-year podcast for The Lancet. Many thanks to all the contributors throughout the year and many thanks to you all too for listening and keep on listening. But more importantly, season's greetings, have a great break and we'll see you in 2009.